Have you noticed that your Medicare reimbursement has not been cut quite as much as you expected? Congress acted during the 11th hour last year to limit the cut to 2.1%. Ron and I will break down how that happened. Plus, United Health Group's pharmacy benefit manager earned more profit than their insurance business. We'll explain why. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, just want to let you know before we get into the program, we experienced some technical difficulties while recording this week, and my audio quality sounds different than normal. Rest assured though, the great content you expect is still there. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. And with you as he has been is the president and CEO of Focus Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's always good to be here. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about something that is very important to our clients in North Carolina. And today we're going to be talking about something that's very important to not just our clients, but to everyone uh, who is connected to doctors somehow, and that's the 2023 Medicare uh, reimbursement or the fee schedule that we get there. Uh, as we reported in the Friday Pulse Check and in, in the Flatlining podcast last year, we were looking at a significant cut to the Medicare reimbursement rate, and um, we could I, we could debate whether or not it was a good thing that they waited that long or, or a good thing that it got done at all together. Uh, but Congress did come in at the 11th hour and cut some of that cut. And we're going to talk a little bit about that math today. So, Ron, my first question for you is, is what is the 2023 Medicare fee schedule looking like um, now that we are in the year and that Congress has passed the omnibus spending bill and President Biden signed? So at a, at a macro level, um, physician reimbursement took about a 2.1% reduction in 2023 over 2022. And I know that sounds strange at a time when we're facing, you know, record-breaking inflation like we haven't seen for decades. The government decided that it was a good thing to pay physicians even less than what they paid them the previous year. Now, mm -hmm. individual physicians could face more or less of a cut because there's other factors. You know, what specialty you're in, some specialties got cut more than others, what geographic area you live in. Um, so an individual physician in a certain specialty in a certain city could face significantly more than a 2% cut, and other physicians a little bit less than two. But from a Medicare perspective across the board, the reimbursement's going down by 2.1%. 2 and that's down from what we thought was going to be a 4.5%, and from even before that, what we thought was going to be something like an 8.5% reduction, correct? Yeah, I mean, the original model, um, which would have gone into place if Congress hadn't done something to remove most of it, would have been about an 8.5% reduction for physicians across the board, which would have been really problematic. So I guess, you know, I guess they could, physicians can be happy that they didn't get, they're not getting beaten with a steel pipe, just with a rubber hose. You know, it still doesn't right. feel good. It just isn't quite as bad as it otherwise would be. And we've talked about previously, and I'll make sure we have those previous episodes linked in the show notes today, uh, why they started with that 8.5% cut. And we've talked before that it has to do with the 10-year budget deficit projection. You know, it looks better to say you're going to be cutting Medicare than not actually cutting Medicare. Um, so I guess the, the first question, though, when we think about that, is that seems to be a congressional question. So who decides what the Medicare fee schedule is? Is it the Department of Health and Human Services or is it ultimately Congress? Well, it's ultimately Congress. And in this problem that we have started literally decades ago um, when and I, I don't even remember what exact year it was, but it was decades ago where Congress realized that healthcare spending for them, namely Medicare spending, et cetera, was inflating much faster than general inflation. So it was chewing up a bigger and bigger part of their budget. 
And the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, projects 10-year deficits. And the CBO, being good actuaries, would project those losses, those increases in the deficit because of Medicare spending. Um, that created a problem for Congress. So what they did was they said, hey, no, no, what we're going to do is we're going to pass a law that says that if healthcare costs keep going up, we'll just go ahead and drop the reimbursement level to offset it. And it was called various things over the years. It was at one point the volume performance standard, then it was the sustainable growth rate, and now it's called something different. It's the same math. So it created this bylaw formula that will decide how much physicians get paid in the previous year. And if and, and that formula will go into effect unless Congress overrules it, which they've done every year since they passed the dang thing. Um, mm -hmm. This year they overruled most of it, just not all of it. But we keep creating this ever-growing problem because overruling it, they typically overrule it for only one year or like they did this time for two years. Um, and it just means that, you know, the, the analogy I use, it'd be like paying your mortgage interest with a credit card. Well, that interest didn't go away. It just went on to a different bill and it compounded itself. Right. So it's not decided by Congress how much is going to be next year. Congress has to overrule what the model would produce that's based on legislation that was passed decades ago. So initially what we saw was it seems like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it was going to be something like an 8.5% cut just across the board. Is that correct? Yeah, and that was broken up into there was four point something that was part of the what they call the PAYGO. That's the old sequestration and another 4% that was tied to this Medicare physician reimbursement model. Those two combined were going to be about 8.5%. And that's what Congress overruled was they got rid of the PAYGO for two years. Um, and then they they let the they technically let the 4% cut happen, but then gave a 2.5% increase, which to me is only Congress could think of letting a cut yeah. and then giving an increase. Yeah. Um, it, the net effect of it is they're they're letting a 2.1% a reduction happen this year to physicians. So let's talk about this year's 2.1% uh, reduction because that's uh, it's obviously I think what people care most about because that's actually what people are getting paid for seeing Medicare patients or for anyone whose contracts are based on current care. That's 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 what matters most. Not not so much. I, I suppose though, if you're with Blue Cross Blue Shield and you're on a Bados plan, uh, they're still using the first. Um, published version yeah. policy, but for the most part, what matters is the final 2023 Medicare physician fee schedule. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned you mentioned at the beginning that as part of that 2.1 percent cut, that's an average, and that some localities see more or less, and some specialties see more. So I guess if, if we think about localities, and you may not know off the top of your head, but I'm, I'll go ahead and ask anyway. What localities saw a bigger cut? And what localities got less of a cut? Yeah, I, I I don't I don't know that data off the top of my head. But here's what I will say: so sure. the other two cuts, the the specialty cut or increase, and the locality cut or increase, are all zero sum games. Okay, so mm -hmm. in other words, um, the specialty reductions or increases are based on changes to the underlying relative value units. But the the group that does that, the RUC, can't spend any money. They don't have any authority to. So if they said, hey, this uh, this service here, we want to throw more RVUs at it because it's more expensive, they have to take it away from somewhere else. And so from an actual perspective, they it's a, it's a net neutral. So for every winner, there's a loser. Same thing with the geographic. The geographic reimbursement, the gypsies, are tied to cost of living. And so if, if somebody says, hey, you know, it got more expensive to live relatively speaking, in Mobile, Alabama, they would increase the gypsy there, but they got to take it away from somewhere else. And they might take mm -hmm. it away from Seattle. And I'm just picking cities. So right. yeah. from from a Medicare perspective, it doesn't spend any money. It just it's how it gets distributed. Now, if you live in one of those cities or you're in one of those specialties that got a cut, it means everything to you. Um, but those things are all sort of budget net neutral. It's only that 2.1 mm -hmm. that actually reduces the Medicare budget. I guess then, just out of my sheer curiosity, historically, and I guess we could say over the last, we could count that to be the last 10 or so years, do we see urban areas getting boosts and rural areas getting cuts, or is it kind of mixed so, when we think about the geographic? 
the geographic changes have been really minute historically okay. because they're all um, they're all relative to each other. And so um, inflation tends to be sort of across the board inflation. So it's not like we could say, well, we're in this middle of this inflationary period, but thank goodness I live in Iowa because there's no inflation there. You know, it, it, it tends to right. be fairly um, mm -hmm. consistent. So there really haven't been big changes in the geographic stuff. Now, the specialty stuff has had mm -hmm. bigger changes to it over, you know, the period, last period of time, decades or so. Um, there's generally been an increase in reimbursement for office visits cognitive services and decreases in some of the surgical specialty um, areas, definitely de decreases in imaging. Um, certain things like sleep, sleep studies have been hit pretty hard. So, you know, that's been where the bigger swings have been happening, where they've been, you know, providing more reimbursement for office visits and less reimbursement for certain specialty items. So when they make the determination of what specialty or, or what particular item is going to get a cut, what particular item might get a boost, and rem remembering to keep it net zero, how much of that is based on maybe perceived necessity of a particular thing or perhaps even political lobbying in some, some cases, or is that not taken into account? So it, it's really not supposed to be political, and I don't think it is. The okay. RUC committee, which is the committee that looks at these things, is made up of a representative from every single specialty. So, you know, the American Car College of Cardiology has an individual on that committee. The, you know, the American Academy of Family Practice has somebody, ACOG. Has, so it's it's every single specialty. And so they actually do a pretty good job of, for example, they might say, look, you know, this surgery when it first came out was very complicated and difficult. And we gave it a certain number of RVUs, either because of work component or malpractice, for example. But boy, we've been doing that surgery a long time now. It's gotten fairly routine. It's easier to do. Um, the malpractice risk on it has gone way down. So we're going to take some RVUs from that. That has some logic to it. Um, and, and there have been things where they've said, hey, you know, these, these things that happen in an office visit are actually a little more intensive than what we originally thought. There's more documentation the doctor has to do in an EMR now. There's more cost because of COVID or whatever, I'm, you know. And, and so we need to move those RVUs over to there. So um, mm -hmm. it's it's I, it's not typically a what you would think of as a political or a party-based thing, other than I think a pretty honest attempt at trying to evaluate the you know, the cost of something compared to something else. I don't have a huge issue with the ruck. You know, they, mm -hmm. they do pretty good work. You know, my issue is more of how and when did we decide that we were going to sort of, A, balance a federal budget on the backs of doctors, and B, take something that should follow general inflation um, and turn it into the opposite. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I compare, let's say, the Medicare fee schedule to... Um, well, a perfect example. What if the government had taken a similar approach with uh, Social Security payments, you know, mm -hmm. where instead of having an annual cost of living adjustment that's formula based, they said, hey, you know what, paying these you know, Social Security people more money is really hurting the budget. So let's go ahead and say if our if our budget gets out of control, we'll take money away from these senior citizens, um, which is in essence what they're doing to doctors. I don't know how we inverted that. Um, and if you look at some of the comparisons of what's happened to physicians over the last 20 years compared to, let's say, even Social Security, which, which most people say hasn't kept up with where it needed to, you see some really stark contrasts in numbers. Well, and, and that's, what, that's one thing I wanted to get to, and this is, I guess, more of a political question, but we talk about politics a lot in programs, so I don't think it's inappropriate to ask, but why is it that Medicare, uh, do you think, is on the chopping block every year i mean it's it's we've talked about this ever i mean uh dr jack resnick from the american medical association said he was extremely disappointed and dismayed that congress failed to prevent a cut uh mgma the medical group management association said that congress again um you, you know failed to to do a cut and they continued this cycle of harmful medicare cuts so why is medicare always on the chopping you know, I think it's a couple of things. Um, one, it's a big budget item. Um, you know, uh, this year, Medicare is going to, or the government's going to spend almost a trillion dollars on Medicare. It's about $900 billion. You know, physician services make up about 25% of that. 
Um, so, you know, you're looking at $225 billion. It's a big budget item. Um, that's one thing. Um, I think the second thing is because they keep getting away with it. You know, I mean, everybody gets angry every year when physicians don't get a raise, or they get a cut like they do this year. But so far, physicians aren't dropping Medicare in mass. Um, okay. So it's sort of like, well, you know, why do you keep doing it? Because they keep letting me. Um, and I think the last thing is, and, you know, you compare this to, let's say, why aren't they cutting Social Security? Um, well, there's only about a million physicians in the in the whole country, and um, they don't all vote as a solid voting block. Yep. Um, and they apparently don't vote on this issue. Um, now, compare that to Social Security. I mean, you even think about cutting Social Security and suddenly you've lost the state of Florida. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the seniors are well organized and they do vote more as a voting block. And AARP would absolutely destroy you if you said you were going to do that. So um, it's, they, they do it because it's big and because they can get away with it. And <laughs> my concern is they've they've pushed that thing so far what happens the year when they don't get away with it what happens the the, the year when the doctors go you know what i've had enough i'm not going to care for these people not for this price um because i think we're getting close to that mm -hmm. we've so this year we're looking at 2.1 percent um they made some things happen in the omnibus spending bill that are going to affect 2024 reimbursement what do they do for that yeah, so for 2024, they got rid of the, the PAYGO, the sequestration, um, for 2024. That's 4% they got rid of. Thank you for that. Um, and then they they didn't change the model, but they agreed to a 1.5% increase for 2024. And, and this really, I think, was designed around not wanting to deal with this issue in an election year. Mm -hmm. um, now, here's the question. So assuming that the model only produces a 4% reduction next year, which could be higher. That means that there'll be a 4% reduction and a 1.5% increase, or, you know, you're going to end up getting another two and a half to 3% decrease next year on top of the 2% you're already getting this year. Um, and it's not like, you know, this is the first year that, you know, that we've had negative um, reimbursement um, mm -hmm. adjustments. I mean, um, if you look at for example, if you look at the last time the government had a surplus, 20, 2001, okay? Mm -hmm. Medicare paid physician services at $38.26 per RVU. Okay, fast forward 20 years to 2021. That number went from 38.26 to 34.61. So over 20 years, Medicare is in essence cut reimbursement by 9.5%. It's about a half a percent per year. The CPIU cost of living adjustment, just general inflation for those 20 years, averaged almost 3% a year. So over 20 years, physicians every year have been losing about 3.5% of real purchasing power, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. That's bad. I mean, yeah. I don't know any other profession that over 20 years is losing 3.5% a year. This year... Okay, if you if you look at it, they're going to take a 2.1% cut. CPI inflation for the last year was about 5.57 on average. That's higher than that now, but average for the year is 5.57. So this year they lost 7.67% of real mm -hmm. purchasing power. Um, and CPI, one could argue, doesn't necessarily track wonderfully for the kind of things that um, white collar workers, physicians who make decent money would be purchasing. So right. say you look at the median price of a home. Okay. Mm -hmm. In that same 20 year period where doctors lost nine and a half percent of their purchasing power, the median price of a home went up by 129% or roughly six and a half percent a year. Mm -hmm. So housing prices went up by six and a half percent per year and doctors lost three and a half percent per year of purchasing income. That's insane. Um, mm -hmm. Again, compare that to Social Security. Okay. And most people would say, boy, we really haven't kept up with true cost of living for Social Security payments. That same 20 year period, Social Security payments went up by 44%. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, my point is, is that 
you know, when does it break? When do we say to doctors, you're going to take another hit this year? It's going to be bad. Um, what if, you know, what if CPI tracking into next year is 7% and they take a 3% cut? Now you're losing 10% that year. At what point do they finally go, you know what? The law doesn't require that I see Medicare patients and I'm just not going to. I think we're already seeing the early stages of that in that if you call a lot of primary care physicians and ask them if they will take a new Medicare patient, they'll say no. A lot of primary care physicians are only taking what they call agents. That means if you were my patient when you were 55, I'll keep you as a patient when you turn 65. But if you move into my city at age 70 and ask if I'll take you as a brand new Medicare patient, the answer is no. Um, and I think we're starting to see the early stages of pushback on wanting to, to care for Medicare patients because of this, because the government's decided that this is a place to balance a budget. And is that one of the reasons you think that we're seeing um, kind of the rise of, of, of we've talked a little bit about corporate um, buy-ins for primary care. Um, one of them is uh, AARP's Oak Street uh, mm -hmm. clinic, which are specifically for Medicare age, you know, um, people. Is that, do you think that's why we're seeing a rise of some of those? Because they see a market of, well, some of these primary care docs are not going to see them. So if we go in and only see Medicare patients, we can, we can order them for um, yeah, I, I think it's, um, I, I think some of that's all misplaced. I mean, I think in general, the rise of corporate money going into, into healthcare delivery, physician buying physician practices to a large degree of people don't understand, you know, what they're buying, you know, um, and, and that's why a lot of them haven't done real well financially. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think they look at it saying, here's a market that we can corner. It's a, you know, they, they need these services. And we can make it work where others can't, you know, right. whether they can or not is questionable. Uh, last question, I think, before we move on, and I and it has more to do with, I guess, the the federal budget seemingly being on the back of Medicare. Um, and that has to do with the amount of members that we have. in Medicare. I know that um, life expectancy did drop last year, according to the report in the United States. But people are generally living longer and... Uh, working longer than they were you know, even 10, 20 years ago. Do we, and I know people like Senator Sanders and even people like President Biden have argued for lowering the Medicare or offering some sort of Medicare buy-in, but does there need to be a serious conversation about raising the Medicare? Yeah, I mean, there, there's two things here. You know, what, what President Biden talks about Medicare buy-in is allowing people to purchase, meaning the government mm -hmm. wouldn't finance, so they'd sell like insurance, purchase right. Medicare before you turn 65. That's fine. I mean, you know, that the Medicare, the government becomes in the business of selling insurance, if you will. Um, now, I will tell you all the way back to Alan Greenspan um, was, I think, the first person who really came out and said that both Medicare and Social Security need to be moved up that the qualifying age needed to be moved up. Um, he didn't win a whole lot of friends by saying that, but what he pointed out to is when those programs were started, um, you know, the life expectancy in, in, you know, the amount of time that both would be used is significantly different than it is now mm -hmm. and that you should adjust it up for that. Or, and this also didn't make him a whole lot of friends, or you've got to tax more for it because basically what he was saying is, um, you know, you're, you're, making promises you can't, you can't fulfill. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he may be, a, I think he was the first one that um, coined the term unfunded mandate. You know, you've, you've created this mandate that you will pay for people's retirement and their health care, but you haven't funded it. Um, and I thought it was a, you know, it's an interesting term, an unfunded mandate. Um, so there is a logical argument to be made for bumping up the, you know, the age of qualification for Medicare and Social Security, because, again, we're living longer and, and the life expectancy drop recently was really a COVID thing. Um, it'll start going back up. Mm -hmm. um, although, again, politically, that is an incredibly difficult thing to, you know, to even propose. There's right. an increase in the age of, I mean, I think Paul Ryan at one point sort of talked about both of them and you would have thought that he had, you know, gone in downtown, you know, Broadway and beat a baby harp seal to death. I mean, it was... Right. Yeah, he was ostracized just for even mentioning the, the mm -hmm. fiscal responsibility around that.
And I think that, you know, this is where I can all opine a little bit, but I think really the only way to do it is to say everyone born after this date, have it be some future date, January 1, 2024, because then it's not going to affect anyone who's alive now. Granted, now you've just created yourself a, a 65-year problem of having to fund it for the next 65 years, but... Um, it's it's a, it's one it's very as we saw with with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, regardless of what side of the aisle you are on that one, you know people don't like it when rights are taken away, and when they see something like uh, Medicare or Social Security, which is an entitlement, it being taken away that that makes people mad. Yeah, and I think yeah, I mean I, you're absolutely right. I mean it, it's you know it's the what about me principle, the wham principle. You know, um, I think there's at least an honest discussion that can be had around things like Medicare age qualification and Social Security. And, and to me, it's not a we have to raise the age because the other alternative is we can increase taxes. Which would you rather? I right. mean, would you rather get your Social Security and Medicare at 65 and pay less taxes through your, or, you know, your or, or pay more taxes during your earning period or get qualified for Medicare at 67 and pay less taxes now? But the, the, the problem is that people want the, well, I don't want to pay now and I don't want to pay later. Well, that, it really isn't on the table. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's gotta be one or the other. Um, but we're just not in a frame to sort of have that kind of honest discussion right now. I mean, um, heck we're, you know, we're flirting with the idea right now of defaulting on our federal, um, uh, promises with the debt yeah. ceiling. I mean, mm -hmm. seriously, I mean, are we really going to consider that? And, and I, I'll tell you what, if I were in Vegas right now, I don't know, as I wouldn't take the odds on that. I, I think that yeah. this Congress might actually do it. And that's insanity, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have more information on the 2023 Medicare fee schedule and some updates that happened kind of at the 11th hour at the end of last year. And they'll be in the show notes for this episode of the Flatlining Podcast, or you can find them online at flatlining.com. Ron, the other thing we want to talk about today uh, has to do with some of the big insurance companies. It has to do with drugs and specifically pharmacy benefit management. We've talked briefly about them before, um, although I think we spent more time talking about uh, you know, how drugs are developed, how drugs are priced. Uh, and it seems that, as Axios is reporting on, uh, on their healthcare policy, uh, side of things that the pharmacy benefit managers are realizing that they are they are probably going to see a bipartisan push from both chambers of Congress to just kind of figure out what exactly is that they do. So I guess we'll start with that question: Is what is it that they do? What are they? So the PBMs. Um, let me give you my sort of honest and somewhat jaded opinion. Then I'll I'll sure. tell you what I what they will say they do. Um, <laughs> There's a uh, an old uh, um, uh, an old uh, a company called Despair.com, and they, and they make these tongue-in-cheek posters called Demotivators, and they're like the opposite of those like soar with the eagles posters. And, and there's one of them that that um, talks about consulting, and it says, you know, consulting. If you can't be part of the solution, there's great money to be made prolonging the problem. Okay. With PBMs, it would be if you can't make things better, there's fantastic money by getting in the middle of it and making it worse. And that's really what they do. You know, they don't make drugs. They don't distribute drugs. They don't sell drugs. They get in the money of the, in the middle of this whole process and they figure out an ingenious way to inject themselves into an incredibly lucrative system and skim money off of every part of it by sort of worming their way into the middle of it. And it's ingenious. I mean, they, you know, they get rebates from the manufacturers to have their drugs be on formula. They get, in essence, paid by the payers to, quote unquote, reduce their cost. And they get money from the dispensing pharmacies. Um, and they can sort of tell the dispensing pharmacies, hey, if you don't give me this much of a kickback, then you won't, you know, be on this, um, you know, on this formulary. 
it's ingenious. I mean, it's it's a lot like the old, you know, when the when the mafia used to have the run the protection rackets, you know, where they would go out and, you know, they go to a small business and say, you know, it's a nice business you got here. It'd be a shame if it burned down and you paid them not to burn your business down. I mean, that's just wonderful. Well, that's to some degree what the PBMs do. Now, they would say that they do a lot more than that, that they actually lower cost and they, you know, try to, to you know, make sure that, that the free market economy works and that the price of drugs doesn't go up too much. And in my personal opinion, most of that's all BS. They figured out a way to make money by injecting themselves into a process and making it worse. That being, I, I, I would agree with you and I would point to uh, an interesting thing I came across in Wendell Potter's uh, Substack this week, where he was kind of raising the alarm bells a little bit about uh, PBMs and the fact that 80% of them are controlled by the big insurance company. Yeah, I mean, you know, think about this for a minute. So PBMs used to be sort of all standalone businesses. And the insurance companies, who were really good at figuring out ways to make money, looked at it and said, hey, these guys are onto something. And they're making money kind of on our backs. Well, sort of, you can't beat them, join them, so they bought them, mm-hmm. you know, and most of the big insurance companies now are either, if you're like Aetna, you're owned by a big pharma company, or yep. if you're like United, you bought the PBM, and now they're part of you, and I think, you know, as Wendell points out, the, the pharmacy PBM side of United is going to make more money than even the insurance side of it, which is just insanity to think, but that's the way it is. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that even makes it even a more incestuous system mm-hmm. when you realize that the vast majority of the customers under these insurance companies, let's like United, for example, the majority of their customers are self-funded. So what United's doing is as the insurance company, they make money by administering those benefits. And then they charge the self-funded customer money for their own PBM to do the PBM work. And they make it again. So it's this wonderful double dipping thing that, mm-hmm. in my opinion, really doesn't lower the cost of drugs. It actually increases the cost. So how do PBMs make their money? A lot of ways. Um, they make their money on rebates. They make their money on the uh, a fee they get from the dispensing. They can make their money on a you know an administration fee to the self-funded employer group or to the insurance company. I mean, they have found a way to sort of skim profit off of almost every part of the whole system of the um, delivery and and um, dispensing of pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And it, you mentioned that it affects obviously patients by raising the, the cost of drugs. How does it affect providers? Oh, uh, affects providers in that a lot of the PBM tactics that get used that they will say lower the the cost of healthcare delivery create barriers for providers to get the um, uh, you know the drug that's needed for their mm-hmm. patients, you know, things like fail first, where a PBM okay. will say, mm-hmm. uh, before you use this really good drug, you've got to show me the patient failed this other drug. Um, right. Or, well, this is my new preferred drug. And so you've got to switch all your patients over to this. Um, I'll give you a personal example. Um, years ago, my, my doctor put me on Lipitor. Wonderful statin, mm-hmm. been around forever. Um, not an expensive drug. Okay. And all of a sudden after being on Lipitor for a couple of years, he said, Oh, I got to change you over to Crestor. Another wonderful drug. And I'm like, okay, why? I don't mean it's okay. I mean, it's no big deal, but why? Oh, well now Crestor is the frontline drug and, and probably Crestor, you know, gave the PBM a bigger rebate. So the PBM is forcing me over to Crestor. So I had to switch to Crestor. Again, that wasn't a big deal for me. They're very, I mean, it's both of these drugs are like Coke or Pepsi. I mean, they're sort right. of, you know, but it is a big deal if you've got rheumatoid arthritis and you've got to switch your RA med because some mm-hmm. of them don't work as well. Some of them you may have, you know, tolerances, tolerance problems with. It's it's a problem if you're a MS patient, you got to switch your MS drug or stuff like that. So, um, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the ways that they, you know, sort of make things harder for the patient or for the provider, I mean. I know a lot of providers are familiar with white bagging, which is you know, yeah. requiring uses of a special of, of a particular pharmacy to get all your specialty drugs. Uh, and I know it's illegal in, in some states. Now. Uh, are the PBMs to blame for white bagging as well? Um, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was another one of their wonderful ideas that they could focus the volume into the person who gave them the, 
you know, the best um, rebate or kickback or whatever. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not opposed to free market economy kind of things, but um, a lot of the stuff, there's reasons why white bagging is, is illegal. One of them is it really starts to get into a, you know, an exclusionary kind of an economy and it, it can create risks because, you know, um, I don't know where that drug has been stored. I don't know how it's been handled before it gets into my office. And yet I'm, I'm expected to take this drug from a patient. It's may have been sitting in their hot car for three days and I'm going to infuse it in them. And, and if they have a bad reaction to that drug while sitting in my office, Lord knows I'm going to get sued regardless of whether I really had anything to do with it or not. So um, it's just another one of the tactics they've used to, to pump up the profit numbers. So, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, Wendell Potter and Axios are both predicting that these pharmacy benefit managers are going to be facing some bipartisan scrutiny in Congress, um, that they need to kind of explain to Congress uh, a little bit better of who they are and probably perhaps a more friendly light. Um, in this particular Axios article, it points to, it doesn't say it outright, but it seems to imply that there is a some sort of, um, I don't know if animosity is the right word, but a, a rivalrous relationship between uh, the big pharmacy benefit manager uh, association, pharmaceutical care management association, the trade group for some of these PBM, and uh, the pharmaceutical research manufacturers of America, pharma. Why, why would there be some sort of contention there between those two kind of blocks within the well, there, there, I think it's a couple of reasons. Um, you know, everybody knows that drug costs are going through the roof. Um, it's become a bigger and bigger um, problem. Drugs are incredibly expensive. Um, and so there's a lot of anger about that. Um, well, you know, big pharma is on the crosshairs of everybody. And, and some of it justified and some of it not. Um, you know, we've talked about some of that. So, you know, big pharma is feeling fairly pointed at and, Part of what Big Pharma or, or you know, the, their trade association is saying is, hey, it's not just us. These guys mm -hmm. over here, you know, they're adding to the cost and they aren't even developing drugs. I mean, at least Big Pharma can say, yeah, we may be expensive, but look at what we've given you. Right. You know, um, these guys can't say any of that. And so there's a little bit of that, you know, look over there, cut them first before you come after me kind of scenario. They're worse than I am. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and, and that. There's some some justification of that. And, you know, the PBMs don't like when Big Pharma points the finger at them. You know, they want to they want to put the attention back over to the people actually developing these drugs. And they'll say, well, they set the price, you know, go go yell at them. Um, one of the interesting things to me is and it's, you know, call me skeptical. I tend to sure. think it's more of call me experienced. But whenever I think about somebody who's maybe has some concerns about their product or service or position. I always like to look at how much money they spend on lobbying, you know, because if you mm -hmm. truly are, you know, are producing, you know, if you're truly, and I, I don't mean to be glib about this, if you're doing God's work and saving the world, you probably don't need a whole lot of lobbying expenses, you know? And if you've got something that maybe you're a little embarrassed about, you need a lot of lobbying because you're going to spend that money to keep legislators from doing what maybe their population would want them to do. So looking at the lobbying money, the PBM Association in 2021 spent almost $8 million in lobbying. Now, that's the stuff we can specifically track. There's right. probably more money that goes through different packs and stuff that is a little bit squishier, that, that sort of soft money stuff. $8 million in lobbying, okay? That was up from $4.25 in the previous year. All mm -hmm. right, well, that's a lot of money, okay? Now, Big Pharma spends a lot more, but Big Pharma is a much bigger entity as well, and they've got their own mm -hmm. concerns, you know, so they spend about $30 million. The NRA, which a lot of people talk about as an enormously powerful lobbying entity, and it is, mm -hmm. and somebody who definitely is under attack, and I'm not saying whether I'm pro or anti-assault rifle, I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying they're under attack, okay? We can at least all agree that sure. they feel attacked. The NRA spent between 3 and $5 million. Yeah. 
So even the PBM entities spending about twice what the NRA spends and big pharma spending 10 times that amount. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Seems to me that there may be a reason for that. And I think the reason is that both entities know that they've probably got something they don't want to be really dealt with, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. So I think, you know, that that's one of the things that really I thought was interesting is if, if the PBMs are really doing that much good stuff, why are they spending $8 million a year on lobbying? You know, I'm glad you brought up the dollar amounts because I've heard that a lot before about the, the NRA, about how much money they spend. But it's interesting to stack them up against uh, some of these other organizations out there that spend significantly more on, on lobbying. PBMs being another one, you know, Planned Parenthood Boats being another, and just seeing how much they compare. So they're spending more money on lobbying. Um, of course, 2021 is the last full year of data we have available up to this point. So it, it, it may be even higher for what they spent in yeah. 2022. We don't know yet. Um, and obviously, it's going to be trying to make themselves look better. Is there really anything? I, I mean, how do you think they could show up in front of, say, the, the Senate you know, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, which is going to be chaired by Bernie Sanders, who is probably you know, the going to be the least friendly towards PBM of anyone in the Senate. How do you think they're going to be able to try and make their, the, their self-image a little bit better in front of a committee well, like that or a senator? And I think that's, you know, that's when the lobbying money gets that high is when you realize you can't, that there's no way you're going to be able to sit up there and look good in a public hearing in front of a committee, especially when someone like Bernie throwing questions at you. And I, you know, I may not, agree with a lot of Bernie's positions, but the guy's very consistent. He is smart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't want to face his questions just like I wouldn't want to face, you know, Katie Porter's whiteboard in the house. Okay. Right. So what you do is you say, well, that isn't going to go well. Well, what do we do? Well, we're going to spend millions of dollars to make sure that when the, when the committee meeting is over and the real deal gets cut in the back rooms or in the committee stuff, that it doesn't happen that it either gets put off or it gets really watered down. And unfortunately, the way to do that with, you know, with our governmental system is make sure that certain senators and representatives are well paid. And I don't mean like paid directly, but I mean money goes into their campaigns and um, or, you know, stays out of the campaigns of their uh, of whoever's running against them. So, mm -hmm. you know, to me, that's where that's the lobbying. money. it's not the lobbying money is not a public relations campaign. This isn't about, hey, we're really doing good stuff. We just haven't told our story. That could make sense to me. This is about throwing money in people's campaigns to say, look, I know it looks bad, but when it comes time for a committee vote, can I count on you to table this or have it never hit a floor vote or water it way down? That's where mm -hmm. the, why they're spending money, both both for the PBMs and for Big Pharma. In the last uh, 10 or so minutes that we have, I want to switch gears and talk about uh, Wendell Potter's uh, initial analysis on United Health Group's 2022 earnings, which were released last week. Um, and and he hasn't he hasn't done the, his full analysis, but he spent a lot of time in this particular article talking about Optum Health, which is the mm -hmm. pharmacy benefits manager of United Healthcare. Um, it, he pointed out that they they contributed four billion dollars to United Healthcare's profits during the last three months of 2022, while the insurance division only contributed 2.9 billion. So, you know, almost 25% more than the rest of them. Why, why would it, how could their pharmacy benefits organization earn more money than their insurance division? Um, well, two things. First of all, I think it's interesting and in, we're in a country where you can say only contributed yeah. 2.9 billion. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that just, that, that speaks volumes to. No, that's that's artists, true. But, yeah. But it, it's because the, the, First of all, there's massive amounts of money flowing through the pharmacy system, and it's much less transparent than the insurance side. And what I mean by that is when United Healthcare is selling their insurance product, whether it's self-funded or fully insured, the buyer, the employer group, is able to compare how they do compared to Aetna, compared to Cigna, compared to Blue Cross, and it's fairly transparent as far as the price of the product and what it brings so they can mm -hmm. shop. And so if United tried to squeak, you know, get exorbitant profits out of the insurance side from a margin perspective, they would lose their business. Right. Now, I would challenge any employer, any employer 
to describe for me how much they pay for PBM services, how it works, what the formula is, and prove that they're getting value for it. They can't. It's incredibly untransparent. Um, it's one of those things where you don't even really know you're paying it. And that kind of, you know, that kind of scenario leads to exorbitant profit models. It's similar to, you know, the attack when people have been doing on banking fees because they hide them or on, well, all the add-ons to your cell phone bill and et cetera, mm -hmm. um, because that's ways to make profit margins much higher. Add into that the fact that most employers don't even know that they're really there, that they have got an option to choose a PBM other than Optum. They can. United packages those together. Um, but you, you could separate them, and, and very few employers do because they don't even know what they're paying. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's this wonderful environment without a whole lot of transparency or scrutiny that massive amounts of money flow through. And United and everybody else has figured out, well, well here's a wonderful way to produce profit. And they have. It produces mm -hmm. incredible profits. Optum's revenues have increased uh, 639% from quarter four of 2012 to quarter four of 2022, going from $7.5 billion to $47.9 billion. How uh, is it con market consolidation? I mean, how, how is it that Optum on its own has gotten so big uh, in the last 10 years? Well, so some of it is gaining more market share, clearly. Mm -hmm. But some of it is, 10 years ago, there were a lot of customers that didn't have any PBM involved. Mm -hmm. And so we're selling them a service now, or Optum, you know, United selling them a service that they didn't even know they needed. You know, it's a little bit, like I said, some of those hidden fees on banking or on cell phones or all the things we don't like when we, when they've been shown the light of day, you know, why am I getting that, you know, that goofy fee? Another perfect example, it's sort of like, you know, um, some of the fees when you buy a car and, and some of that's been shown a light too. Well, don't pay for the Simonizing because they don't actually do anything. It's just a way to add profit. Um, so what they've done is they've created all these ways in the PBM world to add profit into something that didn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it a little bit before and I just want to bring it up again because I always find it just an interesting when people try to, to go around, um, some things like this, and, and we've talked about some of those prescription discount cards. Um, Gunnarack Single Care, is that getting you around your pharmacy benefit manager? Well, it's it's in, in one way, and, and it's a perfect example of how bad things have gotten in the pharmacy world. Mm -hmm. The fact that you could step completely outside of your insurance coverage, okay? Think about that for a minute. Forget the PBM and all those stuff. You, you can, with a free app, say, well, look, it's actually cheaper for me to pay 100% of the cost of this drug by just using this free app that all it does is collect what a pharmacy is willing to sell this product for at cash price mm -hmm. and then distribute it because it's it's basically what you're doing. It's it's like those yep. apps that find the cheapest gas station. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and to get that incremental volume, Walgreens or CVS or whatever is willing to sell that drug to you at cash price for X dollars, and you don't get any benefit of your insurance, that tells me that there's just massive profits in the whole PBM insurance game because they've jacked the profit so high that it's actually cheaper for you to not play the game at all. Mm -hmm. You know, that's to me telling. And so you're getting around the PBM, but you're also getting around this insurance benefit that you paid for. Right. Now, and also think about this. If you're United Healthcare, on one hand, you're like, gosh, I don't like the fact that they didn't let me get my Optum profit. But on the other side, you're going, but they also didn't send me a bill for their drug. Gosh, I win mm -hmm. both ways. Isn't this right. wonderful? I've created an environment where the best way for my customers to deal with me is to not deal with me. Yeah. So now... Wendell Potter, of course, we've talked about before, a former Cigna executive. He's a little bit more, he, he's, well, not a little bit. He's very cynical of all the insurance companies, uh, and, and perhaps rightly so as a former Cigna executive. But he starts off by talking about uh, that it's time to stop calling United Health as well as Cigna and CVS Aetna insurance because they control 80% of the pharmacy benefits uh, market. Um, 
especially now that they get mo most of their money from from drugs as opposed to actual insurance. And I'm just curious what your reaction would be to, to someone saying. You know, I mean, uh, I'm probably not as cynical as Wendell, although I don't think he's entirely wrong. Um, <laughs> there clearly, in my opinion, is something wrong with the whole model. You know, any time that a company like United can make the kind of profit that they make on uh, a PBM and not have that PBM be able to clearly delineate why they produce value okay um there's a problem now let me let me sort of the you know you may not like elon musk and a lot of people don't a lot of people do and elon musk is a really rich guy and everything but at least he can say i made a damn electric car and i yes. made one better than anybody else okay you know yeah. that's he can he can show what he did bill gates same thing you know you could so mm -hmm. you know the people who you look at and say my god that's a lot of money that can point to something that they created okay pbms can't do that so you know when you start to get this kind of a marketplace where you can't clearly point to the value of it and then you've got this incestuous ownership scenario there's something seriously wrong with that in my opinion yeah. well ron we're just about out of time thanks again for joining us today on the flatlining podcast no problem. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. You can subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, Stitcher, Pandora, or the TuneIn app. Let us know if there's a new platform you want to find us on as well. Don't forget you can join our chat and talk with other listeners of the Flatlining Podcast by downloading the free Substack app. I'm Matthew Handley for Ron Howergan. Have a good week.